0: You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, where you will meet entrepreneurs, cultivators, scientists, doctors, and inventors in the cannabis industry.
1: I'm your host, Pam Schmeel, marketer and publicist in the cannabis industry. Today, I speak with Hirsch Jane, founder of Ananda Strategy. Hirsch is a cannabis industry consultant and expert in government policy. He helps guide a company's competitive licensing efforts, expansion strategy, regulatory compliance, and M&A activity across North America and Western Europe. Today, Hirsch shares current policy developments happening state by state and how they can affect a cannabis business strategy. Let's meet Hirsch excited uh to to talk about it so um are you out back out in uh, Los Angeles I guess
0: I am yeah beautiful day here in LA
1: Okay, cool. All right. Well, okay, let's get to it then. Um, um, and I thought that, um, you know, given your experience in, in policy, uh, government policy um, in the cannabis industry, I thought it might be a good idea to explore the developments that are happening at the, at the state level and mm-hmm. how they can affect uh, brands, uh, brand or retail strategy or expansion plan. Um, so I thought maybe we could just get started with Ohio. Um, Yeah. I know everyone who said is very hopeful about Ohio. You read about it all the time. It'll be the 24th state to legalize adult use um, in November. And just wondering what impact you think it will have on, on the industry.
0: Yeah, thanks, Pam. And, you know, I think Ohio is one of the most exciting things, if not the most exciting thing happening in cannabis right now. Uh, You know, so as you mentioned, it would be the 24th state to legalize adult use. And I think that's significant just in the narrative that exists around cannabis. Obviously, that gets closer to what some people think of as a tipping point of 25 states. And, you know, I'll just say, Pam, as someone who, you know, just reads a lot, as we all do about cannabis, you know, a year ago, you would not see the narrative of half the states or almost half the states have legalized cannabis. But now we're getting closer to that point. So it's exciting because it would be the 24th state. Um, I also think it'll get a lot of attention, and and what I mean by that, Pam, is you know special elections often get outsized attention because they're the only thing on the ballot, and you know not to delve too far into other political issues, but I think it's relevant because it it sheds a light on cannabis. Uh, you know there will be two things on the ballot in November in, in Ohio on on November seventh. Um, so one will be abortion rights, um, and the other will be cannabis legalization, and those are two issues that our country um, is really discussing right now after the Dobbs decision last year. And so I'm going to make a. Prediction based on polling. Obviously, none of us know what's going to happen, so maybe I'll be wrong. But what I think we'll see is that in this red state, Ohio, which is the quintessential, you know, midwestern red state, right? That's that's the sort of bellwether for middle, you know, right-leaning America. Uh, I think what we will see on these two issues is that in a red state, nevertheless, despite a conservative electorate, they will see these as freedom issues, you know, as personal choice issues. I mention this because. That is the type of of narrative that tends to get attention, right, in in a special election. So I think Ohio is also significant because it will communicate to the rest of the country where conservative America is on this issue. So that's why it's significant. A few more reasons, because I I think this is all part of the, the, the big story. Ohio is obviously a very big state. It's a state of 12 million people. And so, you know, if Ohio were to legalize adult use, then uh, 55% of Americans would live in a state that has legalized adult use. So that part of it is, is significant, you know, which just bring a lot of people online. And then if you really dig into the weeds here, you know, if you just look at a map, you'll notice that Ohio borders a number of prohibition states, states like Indiana and West Virginia and Pennsylvania um, and Kentucky. And what we have seen, what has been very predictable in other states is that when a state comes online and it borders a bunch of prohibition states, especially if there's big metro areas on the corner that drives a lot of traffic. And, you know, in, in Missouri, for example, Pam, if you and I were having this conversation a year ago, right today, in October of 2022, right before Missouri right, voted on its initiative, we would say, Hey, I think Missouri is going to pass. And, you know, Kansas City, Missouri is literally right on the Kansas border. And that probably will see a lot of traffic. And, you know, lo and behold, Kansas City, Missouri might be the most thriving, you know, cannabis metro in the the country. So, That's just a a way of saying, you know, people from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, are going to be driving into Ohio. People from Lexington and Louisville, Kentucky, are going to be driving into Cincinnati. People from Indianapolis are going to be driving east into Ohio. And so I think like Missouri, um, Ohio will have like really robust sales for that reason. And um, not only does that generate a lot of local political support, you know, in, in Missouri, for example, Josh Hawley, one of the U.S. senators there, a year ago, he wasn't crazy about cannabis, but for whatever reason, after his state legalized it and after it's been such an economic boon to his state, he has moved on to other culture war issues, right, for for lack of a, a better term. And so similarly, I think you could see a J.D. Vance, a senator in Ohio, who's not crazy about weed, if this legalizes and if this is a huge economic driver, he could, he could get behind it. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll just wrap up by saying, you know, I mentioned J.D. Vance. There's also Sherrod Brown, which is another U.S. senator who just so happens to be the head of the Senate Banking Committee um, that is overseeing safe banking, and so this would give him extra motivation. And, you know, the, the final thing I'll conclude by saying is I mentioned these neighboring states. Not only does prohibition states... Um, drive a lot of traffic, but that also puts pressure on neighboring states. You know, if this bill you know passes, Pennsylvania will be surrounded on five sides by adult use states, and you know we've seen that when you're surrounded, you know a lot of the, the the opposition wanes, and so those are a bunch of different reasons. But I think you can sum it up by saying we're getting closer to that tipping point. It's a big red state in the American imagination. Will tell people where conservative America uh, is, and um, you know, I, I think for all of these special, you know it'll it'll send a real message uh, to to the country and will set off a a, a lot of um, developments to come. so that that's why I think it's so exciting,
1: yeah, no, i I didn't even think about that, but right, being a red state to me seems like a big bellwether and and could be a tipping point. yeah, that's 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 a great point. So sorry for my ignorance, but does the one if it's voted uh, positively in the referendum, is that? That is that is all that has to happen. It, it's it will be an adult use state.
0: So here's the the timeline. Um, so uh, the vote will be on November 7th. And the way that the bill is written, they have a series of milestones, right? So a month after the bill passes, home grow is allowed, which, by the way, you know, hasn't always been the case in some states. So, you know, on December 7th, 2023, home grow uh, takes effect. The adult, the draft adult use regulations have to be issued in like May or June of the following year. Within 10 months, um, of the initiative passing adult use sales have to start so if you just do some quick math it'll probably be you know September of, of 2024 which is not the longest but not the you know it's kind of in the middle we've seen some states take two years and some take two months so it's kind of in between again I think it's it's kind of interesting we might see be seeing robust adult use sales during like literally the presidential voting season right yeah. uh, September of, of 24 oh. uh So that's the timeline. You know, the one thing I I will say, Pam, and, you know, again, not to get into other political issues, but I think it's relevant in the context of cannabis. So to your point, like, hey, if this passes, like, are we good? The answer is probably yes. However, the, you know as, as we all know, each state is a little different in the way that their initiate you know their initiative process works. And because this is what is called an initiated statute rather than a constitutional statute in Ohio, what this means is technically the state legislature, which is Republican um, has the ability to make changes to the initiative. So that that has some people a little a little you know worried and for good reason. At the same time, I think what that has led to is a desire to and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but really, tried to drive this vote as much as possible to communicate that there is a clear mandate here for these issues. And so I think there's the reason for some concern in that, unlike other states, the legislature, which is not pro-cannabis, can tweak this. Um, but I'm I'm heartened that, that the response to that has been, OK, let's do the best we can to show this as popular support. And, and I'll say again, I think this intersects with other issues in American politics. I mean, regardless of your politics, you know, we, we have to say there are a bunch of red states that are pretty gerrymandered and so they have high, you know super majorities of, of GOP members but their electorate actually isn't as conservative as their legislature and so i think this is kind of the the tension we're seeing in in states like ohio is you know the push and pull between the legislature right and and popular will and not not to get too far into it but i'm sure some listeners may be familiar with the fact that just a few months ago in ohio there was a debate about you know the legislature was trying to limit the ability limit ballot initiatives, essentially. And so we've seen that in a lot of states as legislatures don't want to give away power to voters on issues like cannabis or minimum wage legislation, right, or abortion rights, where even in red states, people just factually seem to support those. So anyways, I think that's part of the stew here.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then um just one last thing on Ohio, is it a limited or do we know yet? Is it a limited license state or it is. So
0: it- It is a limited license state, So there are currently 130 dispensary licenses that have been issued. About a little more than 100 of them are open. So about 105 of them are open. One of the things we've seen is that in recent months, many of those stores, like these medical stores, have opened because people anticipate adult use. And I, I should also say, you know, we have seen some MA activity in Ohio in, in the past couple of months, um, like vexed science being being one example. And so it reminds me of the Arizona initiative a few years ago in Arizona in, in 2020 had a ballot initiative. And both before and after that, we saw a lot of people trying to get into the state. And so I think that reflects some confidence people have about the initiative. But to answer your question, it is a limited license state. Um, there are 130 dispensary licenses currently issued, which is, pardon me not 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 a ton given the size of the state um and other things i'll note is currently operators can have a maximum of 5 dispensaries so there are a handful of operators that are at their cap of 5 and that makes ohio different from a state like arizona where some some operators have like 20 out of the 130 stores so that limits the ability of, of any operator to scale too much and the other thing i should note is that this law contemplates issuing an additional 50 dispensary licenses and an additional 40 cultivation licenses. And so just the way the initiative is written, right? So we have these 130, another 50, right will be will be issued. And then there is a moratorium for two years before licenses are issued. So limited license, but a little bit of license expansion and then contemplating um, a, a moratorium for a period of time
1: right. I mean, you know, given the news in the industry, it seems like a lot of people are very interested in Ohio yeah yeah so okay
0: absolutely and and i'll just say i mean it's been said before but like i think culturally for the first few years of adult use legalization it was concentrated on the coasts of this country right which is limited in its geography and has its own sort of culture but i think it's really missouri was very exciting when it came online because it was a red state and you know, you see the migration of so many people from northern Ohio into Michigan, which is a thriving cannabis market. And it's just exciting to see, you know, the Midwest version of cannabis culture really gain expression. And I think that's tied to the progress we need to make federally. So long as this remained a coastal issue, quote unquote, yeah. it would be really hard to, to get the progress we need to see in D.C.
1: Because they want to see the heartland making a move on it and embracing it, and which they speak to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so moving to Florida, um, Florida's Supreme Court is reviewing the potential for a November, 20, uh, 24 ballot initiative. Um, and everyone is all, all eyes are on Florida have been, everyone seems really excited about that is, is Florida a key factor in advancing the industry? What do you, what do you think about that? And is it Florida... going to happen? I mean, I, I feel like they, with the governor, I don't know, it just, but everyone seems excited about Florida
0: totally yeah i mean i think it's a really exciting and interesting issue you know i think we could do a whole episode just on florida and all the all the nuances there and its implications uh so where should we start i mean i think one one place to start is that the supreme court arguments will be held on november 8th Um, you know, so the Florida Supreme Court, you know, this this petition got a bunch of signatures. Now the Supreme Court is going to review it for compliance with what is called the single subject rule. And not to get too far into the weeds, but Florida, you know, is is a state that has a rule that says, hey, you can put something on the ballot, but it has to touch only on a single subject. And so if it touches on multiple subjects, right, I want to legalize cannabis and I want to, you know, um, allow for X, Y and Z, right, then that's not allowed. And so uh, the, the Supreme Court is reviewing it. And I mentioned November 8th, because on November 8th, we're all going to wake up and we're going to see what happens in Ohio, right? Uh, that the, the Ohio elections on November 7th. So on November 8th, I I believe, we'll see, um, all across America, they will be talking about this abortion rights and cannabis legalization measure in Ohio. And my hope is that that those, you know, as we've discussed before, will we'll, we'll pass. And so I just think it's interesting that that's the date on which the oral arguments are going to be had in the in the Florida uh, case uh, about its single subject rule. And I think the, the wider context here that you were kind of alluding to, Pam, is that you know this is the third sort of instance in which we've tried to put something on the ballot um, in Florida an adult use measure. There was an effort in 2020 and an effort in 2022, um, and both of those um, sig- you know both of those um, efforts were struck down by the courts for violating that that single subject rule. And so I, I think, you know, your, your point is well taken, like, Hey, there's, there's some concern here. Basically the last two times this happened, the Florida Supreme court didn't want this, um, on, on the ballot. Right. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, again, not to get too, in, too into politics, but it's meant it's worth mentioning because it's relevant here. The Florida Supreme Court is overwhelmingly now made up of Ron DeSantis appointees. As you have pointed out, he has made his opposition to cannabis legalization clear. He has an attorney general, Ashley Moody, who works for him, right, who is making the argument in court that this is unconstitutional. So I think your point is a good one, which is to say, you know, the Florida GOP power structure, for lack of a better term, is signaling that they want the Supreme Court to invalidate this again. At the same time the the people who developed this initiative did so in a very legally thoughtful way and so most people think it will stand up to scrutiny and so i think that's one interesting oh, thing. To, mm-hmm. yeah yeah um And uh, yeah, it's one interesting thing to watch, and and just to to talk about the timing, they have the oral arguments in November, the court has to make a decision by April, they will probably make a decision a little bit before then. So those are kind of the the legal mechanics, and it's, you know, it's kind of fascinating, because it touches on what we were talking about in Ohio, right, do we, do we like make this um, decision available to the voters, do we allow them to vote on it, or do we as a legislature think we know best and, you know, one other wrinkle to consider about Florida is that unlike every other state in America, it requires a 60% threshold to pass an initiative. Every other state, right, it only requires 50%. So that further shows you, right, how they've tried to to, to make it hard, right, to, to try to limit popular will. And so those are some of the mechanics. Um, a, a few other things that that I'll say. I mean, if this were on the ballot, it would be on the ballot in November of 2024, and so it would be. A, you know, Florida is a huge market. It's often a swing state. It's a very expensive market. This would require 60% of the vote, and so although polling suggests there is more than 60% of the vote, it'll be really, really expensive um, to to run that campaign. And maybe one more thing I'll say, and then and then I'll pause because you know I I think there's there's a lot we could say about Florida. I think one of the exciting things well you know it's obviously a state of 20 million people that's very exciting it sees a very large number of tourists it sees 130 million tourists a year right so that is that's very exciting and then there are other things about it that I think are just as exciting but that elude sort of popular attention so one of the things that I've noticed is that Over this year, there's a large number of operators who have set up stores in what is called the Florida Panhandle, right? So that's like the western side of Florida that borders these other states in the deep south, like Georgia, right, Alabama, like Mississippi. And, uh, you know, as people may know, that is probably the most culturally conservative region of the country. It's very different than Miami. And so, you know, if we think about a world in which all of these stores go adult use and you have people driving, making the short drive, right, to over to Pensacola, right, from New Orleans and, and all these other places, that will, in the same way, I think Ohio opens up the Midwest, Florida really opens up the the deep south. And you know, people might think about miami and and that. But I think really the exciting part of Florida is is the rest of Florida. And you know, once once people in the Florida panhandle are consuming cannabis, that's the most conservative demographic in America. And um, I, I think that that bodes well for the future of cannabis reform.
1: And honestly, the longer the state waits to pass adult use, the, the elderly market is gaining so much momentum. I mean, it's 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 a given that you know the more and more um, elderly come on board, they can't really fight it. Um, so, and 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 also, I've tried to travel to Florida, When I traveled to Florida before, I tried to di- visit a dispensary, but out, yeah, outsiders, tourists cannot purchase within dispensaries there. It's 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 uh, it's crazy.
0: Totally. I think, I, I think you're making a great point about, you know, the elderly or senior citizens and use of cannabis. And I think we are all kind of having that conversation right now. We're seeing the rates at which, you know, um, you know, seniors are adopting cannabis. I think many of us are familiar with the recent Sanjay Gupta uh, special uh, that he did, right, with, with Mama Sue. And that's just another um, example of it in the zeitgeist. I can certainly say, you know, my parents, when I sit down with them and, and we have meals together, the number of pharmaceuticals that they consume, I would say many of the people in our lives who are, above 70. If you see the number of pharmaceuticals that are being consumed at- it's, you know, and, and so, yeah, that's what gets me excited about this. Like, how can we normalize cannabis quickly enough that the senior citizens in our lives who otherwise would not engage can can find healthier alternatives? And uh, I think that's incredibly exciting. And I will say from a political perspective, right, a lot of the fears about cannabis, I think, are focused on sort of outdated ideas about youth consumption, right? I think we need to reframe what a cannabis consumer is, right? And and I think one of the ways to do that is to highlight the, the roles that it's having in senior citizens' lives, and uh, you know, just this is getting a little far afield, but I, I really admire companies who, you know, there are some some companies here in California who will, uh, you know, bus senior citizens over to their dispensary once a quarter, and I think that's yes,
1: it's that's happening a- here, it's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's happening in New York. I, I keep hearing that over and over again, as, as that is becoming a thing. Um, oh. And dispensaries are doing that to, you know, a lot of groups are doing that and bringing seniors in. Yeah, it, to, you know, destigmatize it. So that's exciting. Um, Yeah, so this next question I'm kind of excited about. Um, I I didn't think it might be happening so soon, but I hope it does. But in Minnesota, um, I know you've mentioned before that Minnesota has a highly unique adult use model and is going to is leading the future of uh, hemp beverage hemp beverages in that they might be introducing the idea of. Uh, alcohol and cannabis beverages co-mingling. Is this something that is can really happen? I i thought this seems so down the road, but that would be really exciting.
0: Yeah. I think I think is a, a really interesting market. I had the chance to to go to Minnesota, um, Minneapolis, beautiful city, especially over the summer. I had the chance to go there and experience it. But yeah, I think Minnesota is very exciting for a number of reasons that that we'll talk about. Um, but generally it's, it's an example of, of what I think about, of the laboratories of democracy. I think what is, what is fascinating if you're in this space is to observe all of the different approaches that states are taking towards cannabis. And some of them like Minnesota, um, are, are doing very unique things. And I think that is part of breaking the stigma as a state adopts more permissive and unique models of regulation and the sky doesn't fall. I think that's an important part of how we destigmatize the plant and move past this really restrictive model. Um, But what's exciting about Minnesota, I mean, uh, uh, so many things. One, again, you know, as we were talking about in Ohio – I always think it's very exciting when a state comes online and it borders a bunch of prohibition states and it, you know, shows you the interest that those other states have in cannabis. So if you look at a map of Minnesota, I mean, look at, you know, uh, like, for example, the the Twin Cities are practically on the Wisconsin border, for example, right? Wisconsin doesn't have access to legal cannabis. The amount of traffic we're going to see into Minnesota is exciting. Similarly, if I think about Fargo, North Dakota, right, that's right on the border. So that's one thing that's exciting about it. I think it's always exciting when a Midwestern state, like in the middle of, of, Of of a bunch of prohibition states opens up. It changes the conversation and and changes culture. So that's one thing. Um, I I think, uh, you know, the other thing is, is beverages, as we mentioned before. So, you know, Minnesota. Is basically the first has adopted the most permissive approach towards low THC kind of like hemp beverages, and so you can go as I did when I was in Minnesota. You can go to lunch at like just a normal random pizza restaurant, right? Um, And you can order a beverage, right, that is a hemp derived product that contains THC. And I know there's a whole kind of debate that's going on about those hemp intoxicants, and we we can talk about that. But just setting that aside for a second, there is something revolutionary first about um, just how nor- how normalized that makes it, right? You really normalize cannabis um, when when you can order it in that setting. And I kind of felt like it was the new martini lunch, right? We were at this nice pizza restaurant, and instead of having to order a beer, we we could we could have this um this hemp beverage, you know?
1: Oh, new martini lunch! I love that. Right? Yeah, it's
0: it's, it's exactly
1: martini lunch. <laughs> exactly.
0: I mean, the martini lunch sounds fun, but you know, it's not it's not sustainable, right? Certainly not the three martini lunch. That's that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's. But yeah, I mean, it was it was it was cool. I, I um. I, I got to, I was in Minnesota with um, Jason Tarasek, by the way, who's a really great uh, lawyer in Minnesota and played a really key role in um, shepherding you know, uh, a lot of the legislation through over the past couple of years. Um, so I, I was with him at this pizza restaurant and, and we were sort of making that joke and it was fun. But so that's the first thing, right? There are thousands of places in Minnesota now where you can go and you can um, consume a beverage, which is a form factor that is familiar to a lot of people and as a replacement um, for alcohol. And so that serves to both normalize cannabis And I think that gives that form factor, which has struggled to gain traction in a lot of states, such as California, a way to to kind of gain traction. So I think that part of it is exciting. And then, as you mentioned, there is a kind of commingling of alcohol and, and cannabis out there. Uh, what I mean by that is, there are many brewers in Minnesota who are now either manufacturing or dispensing, right, um, these THC beverages. Now, there might be a certain crowd out there who would be very concerned about that, who see the mixing of things like, you know, alcohol and cannabis as potentially very, like, dangerous and something that should be avoided. And certainly, that's the, the norm in most states. I have a different opinion. Now, granted, I'm I'm biased, but I'm of the belief that, um, you know, Americans consume alcohol, right, as, as many cultures do, maybe sometimes more than we should, but we're not going to give that up, right? I think the history of prohibition proves that. I think cannabis can be a way in which alcohol can be consumed more responsibly and more moderately. I, I find that to be true, right. In, in my own life, people often anecdotally report that if they, you know, smoke a joint, then, you know, they only need to have two glasses of wine rather than like, you know, more than a bottle. And, you know, obviously this is getting very subjective, but I often find that if I consume cannabis before um, consuming alcohol, then I I can enjoy the taste of the alcohol rather than see it yes. as a to an end. And so, um, I think this is exciting. Again, there are there. I'm sure there are public health advocates out there who are outraged about the fact that alcohol, you know, alcohol, that brewers in Minnesota can, can, can manufacture and distribute these beverages. But I actually think these two products, you know, we've always used them together. They can be used in in harmony moderately. And again, last thing I'll say, because I think there are so many other things about Minnesota that are exciting, but I'll, I'll just say one more and then I'll pause. Um, I think, the uh this has been a real economic lifeline for a lot of the brewers in Minnesota. I mean, it's really quite fascinating. There are many craft brewers in Minnesota who were struggling, but the popularity of these TH, these low THC beverages and their engagement with it has really helped boost them. And so if we talk about cannabis as an economic development story, often and often that's been disappointing because of the highly regulated way in which we've rolled out this economy, we should pay attention to the instances in which it You know, plays nicely and boosts an existing industry in in the state. That seems like a clear path to normalization and acceptance, right? By by.
1: Right, right. No, I. That's a really great way to look at it. That it, right? It could fill a hole where you know a, a certain part of the industry is is failing, and and you know, same thing with farmers in New York. They they needed the hemp industry to you know boost their farming um they were not surviving um so but same same kind of thing so yeah does that in uh, minnesota does the is the liquor authority involved in the uh in, in 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 liquor and hemp products being sold in the same place like it would be in new york or I don't know. Other no,
0: I don't I don't believe the main alcohol regulator is is involved. I do know that things are very much in flux in Minnesota. So they've passed an adult use bill. That adult use bill hasn't been rolled out. Um, they're still in the process of naming um, a, a regulator for the adult use program. There's actually been some back and forth there. They appointed someone who <clears throat> turned out to not be a great fit for the job. But um, to answer your question, as far as I know, uh, the Liquor Authority is not uh, directly Um, In in, involved um, in in that regulation, but there isn't there's sort of an ongoing effort right now to bring um, to sort of build that regulatory framework and so in in recent months, a lot of these hemp businesses have just started becoming formally registered and, and paying taxes. And um, it it actually, you know, the number of registrations and tax receipts are actually pretty significant. And I guess I predict that in the coming months, like people will look at the amount of these sales by just by virtue of how widely available they are. Right. You know, because these these beverage products can be sold in thousands of different places, such as a brewery, a restaurant, right, a liquor store. I think we will um, we will be kind of astonished by the economic impact that it's had.
1: So, wow, um, it's exciting.
0: And last thing I'll say on on Minnesota is um, this is the first state that has really pared back local control, which is to say, if you are a city that has more than 12,500 residents in Minnesota, um, you have to have at least one uh, dispensary. And I think that is a wise because we've seen in many states they have uh, legalized cannabis and yet they've given an immense amount of local control to cannabis business uh, to local jurisdictions. And at least in my opinion, that those half measures often end in disaster. Right? If you legalize cannabis but then allow a bunch of cities to ban legal activity, that just allows for the illicit market to proliferate, as we've seen in um, California and, and many other jurisdictions.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you see in New Jersey right now, I think only 40% of the municipalities have, have opted in. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's a state that's just bursting at the seams to want to be legal. So, uh, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, it's, it's a fits and starts and yeah, it's kind of a big mess it seems, but, um, so um, going to Michigan, which is I feel like it's New York, Michigan, uh, California, Colorado, one of the, you know, the big states that are are, are talked about and seems like to have the most robust market like um, I know they had problems with price compression there recently and you know how how are things going in Michigan.
0: I think Michigan is one of the most exciting markets um, in the country, and obviously all, all, all markets have challenges, and there are plenty of Michigan operators who are feeling those challenges and who have gone into receivership, so it's not all roses. But I think you can say Michigan, by some metrics, has the most successful or, or the most exciting market in the country. Now, why why might one say that? Well, first of all, if we look at their sales numbers, right? So they are generating total sales a month of like $276, 277000000 million. You know, just some quick math, that's a $3.3 billion run rate. So that's you know, clearly puts it as the second biggest market in the country, right behind California. And if you think about it, Michigan is 25% of California's population. So 10 million versus 40 million people, right? It's a fourth of California's population, but it's doing two thirds of California's sales. And so that's that's kind of an interesting way to consider it's, it's right? It's like, I'm yeah. only- Wow! Right, that's it's remarkable. California is um,
1: a huge market.
0: <laughs> it's a huge market. You know, California's underperformance often goes unnoticed because we look at a raw sales figure. We're like, oh, California a five billion dollar market, and we don't consider that it should be a twelve to fifteen billion dollar market. And so that's why I think per capita sales is really the metric. Right? You want to know in Michigan, right? There's a three hundred dollar per capita sales number, right, which is like that's the amount that an average you know resident spends on cannabis in a year. Uh, and in, in California, then that number is a fraction of that, um, you know, it's like a third of that. And so, uh, yeah, Michigan is driving that Because
1: around. of the illegal market, do you think? Is that why it's just not recorded? Is that kind of what you're think, saying? Maybe. Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. In, in California, you know, two thirds of the market is illegal. It's about a five billion dollar legal market. And, you know, the illicit market is estimated at 10 billion. But obviously, none of us know because it's it's uh, it's it's really hard to estimate. But I mean, to, to your point, Pam, to really like double click on it, I think one way to really get a sense of how big the illegal market is in California, one thing that I've noticed is when a store opens up in a new jurisdiction, right, <clears throat> that has had no cannabis access, so when the first stores opened up in Fresno. The amount of legal sales those stores generate, you know, Fresno is a city of half a million people, had no cannabis access. The amount, I mean, you would expect those stores to do well, but they do so well. And it's evidence of the fact that there's just massive, massive illicit demand that then has a legal channel. And so, you know, when you see how much sales are boosted by opening up these stores in these big cannabis deserts in California, it really gives you a proxy for how much untapped, right, sort of legal demand is out there because you visibly see it. You're like, wow, that store is doing you know, like a, like six yeah. figures a day. That's 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 really quite good. Um, so, but but I mean, to go back to your question on Michigan. It's a very exciting market, uh, first because of its total sales figure. They must be doing something right. And then, you know, you ask the question, well, how are they able to generate so much in legal sales? Well, first, they've had really robust retail expansion. You know, just they legalized cannabis. um, You know, legal sales started in late 2019. But just consistently, month after month in Michigan, new dispensaries will open across the state. It's It's not really rocket science, but they've just had more points of distribution open up and it's the opposite of california which has this local control which prevents these new stores from opening and then unlike california which by most measures has the highest tax rate in the country michigan has one of the lowest tax rates in in the country and so it's it's not that complicated of a story but that's what makes it exciting right if we just allow these points of distribution to expand in in the state and in the country and if we just don't you know dr- you know it's dramatically overtaxed this then then there's yes. huge economic potential you know um and don't you know,
1: it, yeah the policies of, of the taxation you know the taxing policies I, I I don't understand it. it's people who are who are in power just don't have never been entrepreneurs just don't understand the economics of it it I
0: mean, yeah and and you know I I think i i get the need to generate revenue but there's a point at which it becomes really self-defeating right and so uh, you know, and we're well beyond that point uh, in, in California. And and that's why I think this conversation we're having contrasting Michigan and California, for example, is so important because the this, this short story is think about what California would be doing in sales if it followed the Michigan model. It would be at least a $10 billion market. And then think in turn about the tax receipts that would generate if we capture that legal demand. Again, this has been said many times before, so I'm not saying anything too unique, but but uh, it's, it's true. And If we can, just to really harp on this point, I mean, the similarities between California and Michigan are strong, right? So you mentioned Michigan having gone through price compression really dramatically over the past two years. That's the same story as California. Um, Michigan has... You know probably outside of california and new york has had the most robust long-standing illicit market because it had this caregiver model right for for 20 years and so michigan is quite similar to california and then it had a really dense and sophisticated illicit market but the way that it chose to approach that illicit market um was by trying to compete with it right by by keeping taxes low instead of instead of taxing more and you know even down to little things that i think are exciting about Michigan. You know, like the the Michigan cannabis tourism market is robust, which what I mean to say is you can read about tons of cities in Michigan that have made cannabis tourism part of their economic development strategy. There are companies like Grasshopper Farms in uh, Michigan that do tours like of their properties that, you know, to, to the general public. And so there's an openness. Right. And there's a desire to mix it in with a larger economic development strategy, whereas in California, for whatever reason, which should be a bastion of cannabis tourism. We have not engaged with the industry and, and been as open about it, which, which honestly is quite confusing. And so, you know, Hey, we, we it really is need
1: confusing. To, you know? <laughs> it's confusing. I mean, can you, t- I mean, why do you think that is? I, I mean, just, I, I'm just dying to know because it seems so obvious to everyone that these high taxes and exactly what you were just laying out uh, that yeah. makes complete sense to even a dummy. I mean,
0: So here's what I think. And I say this as a Californian who's lived here most of my life and loves this state and identifies it with it in, in many ways and really loves it and probably wouldn't want to live anywhere else, I don't think. Uh, I think the problem is that in California, a lot of policy decisions are not really made for like what will maximize the benefit for the entire state, but what caters to a group of what you might call special interests that are important politically. So I'll give you a few examples. Local governments are a really powerful political interest in California. By virtue of it being so big, it's more like a country, right, than a state. A lo- you know, There's a strong tradition of local control in California any governor, right, who attempts to cross local elected officials, I mean, is really going to be in for a lot of pain. And just to give you one example, you know, even on housing, which is California's most acute crisis, uh, you know, even like the folks in Sacramento are hesitant to impose housing requirements to build affordable housing on cities and are only now getting around to to suing them. And so there's a strong tradition of local control. um, And so there's a big fight there. And especially a governor who I don't know, might have higher aspirations one day, doesn't really, you know, and might be counting on people from his state to support him in a future primary, probably doesn't want to irritate local power brokers across the state, right? So I think that's one of them. Another sort of, sort of special interest Um, what California calls, I think this term is funny, revenue recipients, Um, oftentimes taxes are earmarked for a specific purpose. And so in the case of cannabis, you know, taxes are earmarked for specific programs, right? Um, Many of them sort of dealing with with at-risk youth. And look, those, those programs may be laudable goals, right? But there's something... When cannabis taxes are directly tied to a specific, you know, nonprofit, you know, maybe a set of nonprofits that are allied with different elected officials, and that group can say, if you cut cannabis taxes, that means my program is being cut. You know, despite the fact that California's budget is like, you know, tens of billions of dollars, and we want, you know, we could easily find the funding for this program elsewhere. Um, when 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 those revenue recipients are tied to tax policy, you know, a, a elected official thinks to themselves, well. Who 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 do I have more to be afraid of? Right, I, I'm I'm more afraid of right these advocacy groups that are well politically connected than the quote unquote weed industry. And so, uh, I I that I think is the unfortunate thing is that a, a lot of those uh, uh special interests have a lot of clout in Sacramento.
1: I guess just what we thought, you know? Yeah. Okay. I just okay. Well,
0: but, but I mean, obviously, I'm biased here, but. It would be better for everyone if this market were legal, right? We talk about youth cannabis use, we talk about untested, you know, tainted products, the the, the harms of the illicit market in California are so, um, so egregious. I mean, even if you just think to uh, the ways that huge swaths of California's national forests have been, I don't want to be alarmist, but just taken over by cartels and, yes. you know, I live in LA, which is like sort of urban California, but if I were a resident of rural Northern California, um, in which residents, like in many other states like Oklahoma, have to live in fear of like violent cannabis cartels, I would think to myself, these people in these urban enclaves don't really care about me, right? Um, They just care about these other groups, and I think they have a point, so.
1: Right, and- and the government should be be you know concerned with that so yeah okay that's a whole nother i know there, there's so many things to all this um so um how about the deep south like what's happening there like georgia yeah. or, is it just feels like you you don't hear much about georgia or north carolina i mean they have a robust hemp industry but you know
0: yeah I think um, there are some exciting things happening in in the deep south recently, and so I think two states to focus on are Georgia and Mississippi. And so Georgia recently announced. Uh, so Georgia has you know a pretty uh, modest medical program. It is a low THC oil medical program. So you can't buy you can't buy flower in Georgia. So you know we shouldn't pretend that there's a robust cannabis market in Georgia. It's a very limited market, as many medical markets, including New York's, started out as. Um, and look, there's been a ton of problems with the Georgia program. They passed a law a bajillion years ago, and it's taken a long time to roll out. But what's exciting that's happened recently is Georgia recently said that independent pharmacies, right, pharmacies in, in Georgia can carry these low THC oil products. So there's about 500, 600, some say maybe 1,000 max pharmacies in Georgia. Already 120 of these pharmacies, so 10, 15, 20 percent, have already said that they're interested in carrying these low THC oil products. 90% of people in Georgia will live within a 30-minute drive of a pharmacy that sells one of these low THC oil products. Now, I don't want to overstate this. It's not like these are dispensaries, but that means you know, 90% of people can legally, if they have a medical card, go in and buy this product. And it also, I mean, going back to our alcohol conversation, and I think it also plays a role in the way this product is framed and the stigma around it, right? When you are administering yes. this oil product in a pharmacy, you are yes. saying cannabis is medicine and it's not a drug, right? And so that 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 goes a long way. And so I think that's exciting, right? That's the kind of subtle change that kind of flies under the radar, but these low THC oil yes. products are available there today. And um yeah. So I I think, you know, there's obviously a long way to go, but I think that's really exciting. And, you know, just imagine a world in which, you know, we were talking about Florida before that Florida panhandle, right? Borders, Georgia. So imagine Pam, I mean, if, if you and I are talking, you know, 14 months from now, right in December of 2024, and just imagine that Florida has just legalized adult use. And then in the interim period, Ohio and all these other states have done so. And Georgia has these like THC oil products available at all of its dispensaries. It kind of naturally, it's like, okay, well, I could just drive right? 30 minutes across the border, right? And, and by, well, shouldn't we just do this here? So uh, I think the, the confluence of those, that's, I think the exciting thing always with cannabis is like, how did the different threads of progress kind of come together and what does it build to? So that's Georgia. And then the other thing I think is worth mentioning in the deep South, and um is Mississippi and so Mississippi by many metrics the most conservative state in the country it recently did something that like Georgia I think is one of these like subtle changes that actually say a lot and so um, Mississippi's had a has a medical program by the way that medical program is by most metrics the fastest growing medical program ever there are now 30,000 people registered in the Mississippi medical cannabis program which is one percent of the population which, I mean, think about it, that started this year, right? So 1% of the state of Mississippi's population um, is now a registered medical cannabis patient a year in, that's, that's pretty wild. So that program has already been growing you know, really in a really robust way. There are already more than 100 dispensaries licensed. Um, but what they recently decided was that topical products would not require um, a medical card. So what that means is, okay, like normally in Mississippi to access the flower and other stuff. Yeah. You need a medical card, but what they're saying is like a topical product, like a lotion, right? Like a, like the, you know, the kind of thing you rub on your hands, the most innocuous kind of cannabis product, essentially the most medicinal kind. Um, they are saying you, you can be an adult, anyone 21 years or older in Mississippi can purchase that product, which on the one hand is you know pretty mild. It's like, yeah, of course, like you should be able yeah. to purchase a lotion, but it's the, I'm in history in the deep South that you can, an adult without a medical prescription can purchase a cannabis product and that it's clearly understood, right? It's so obviously medicinal, like what you're going to stop like someone right, from right, purchasing right. like a lotion for their own, right it's like crazy, right? Like, right. and so these are, these are the things that break down the stigma, right? That, that break down the legal barriers, right? And the functional barriers, like I can go to this normal pharmacy, I can be an adult, but really break down the stigma, right? And, 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 and so- that's why I think th- these developments in the deep south are, are really exciting.
1: Right, right. And and once to- I mean topicals are are, I believe, are what's turning the elderly community over, you know, t- um believers in cannabis as a medicine. Um, so if, if it starts topicals there, that might be a good thing to um, you know, to break the stigma and uh, and soften, soften the opinion on that. So yeah.
0: That's a, that's a great point. And again, I think it shows how all of these different um, uh, trends, impulses are going yes. are together. Yes, like normalization of this product amongst the elderly. I bet there's a bunch of like conservative elderly people in Mississippi who are like, I just want my medicine and like, I don't really trust the government. So why are you making me register through this program? Yes, like, I, I to go, go, go buy this product and they're like, okay that
1: that right. seems really right 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 yeah um so okay so uh, moving over to new mexico um you know very curious about what's going on there you're hearing a lot but um are they leading the way for social equity what what is, what is i'm just curious what other states are doing and uh if if you think that they're setting a good example for how we should um promote social equity entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah, I think what I would say is they they have a very diverse uh, market and they've taken a, a little bit of a different approach, but I think it, it's really worth paying attention to. So, I mean, first, if we think about New Mexico, New Mexico is a very small state. It's a state of 2 million people. It's one of the poorest states in the country, right? It's a very low income state. Um, and yet, you know, in its most recent month, it generated $48 million in total sales. And so if you just do some quick math, that's like a $600 million run rate. So first and foremost, it's, you know, wow, this really small state of 2 million people. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying about Michigan, right? It's like when you see the economic impact, right? Um, You're like, wow, imagine if this were extrapolated to a larger state, right? Um, And so that part of it, first of all, I think is interesting. It is if we think about cannabis as an economic growth story, it's hard to think of a better example than New Mexico because, just quite frankly, it's a low-income state, and this has, you know, generated a ton of jobs. Um, you know, almost 600 million uh, in sales, and almost one percent of the workforce in New Mexico now works in the cannabis industry, which is remarkable. There are 5,000 people, right? I mean, out, out of the, um, you know, out of uh, all the people working, you know, one percent of the workforce uh, works in the industry. Um, And so the reason they've been able to achieve that level of success is they've had a very open licensing system and like I don't want to pretend that it's perfect but to answer your question about you know diversity and equity, what I think is interesting is, you know we often hear the refrain in California, you know we want an industry that looks like California, which makes sense. what is interesting about New Mexico is you have an industry that looks like New Mexico. Um, the average cannabis business owner in New Mexico is not a titan of high finance, is not someone who came off of Wall Street. Um, it's often like a veteran, right? And their spouse running a mom and pop cannabis business, sort of the, the demographic of people that you would imagine running a restaurant, for example. And so New Mexico is in, you can agree or disagree with their approach, But to the extent that there's a lot of ink that has been spilled about ensuring that we have a representative industry and the need for diversity, which, you know, I'm obviously incredibly supportive of, we should think about what structures actually give rise to that, right? And we should say, okay, well, New Mexico had a very open system where essentially anyone could obtain a license. And, um, you know, there were not huge barriers to entry. And those barriers to entry normally serve to keep, you know, obviously people without wealth out, which are disproportionately minorities. And so not saying that system's perfect, not saying all of those dispensaries will survive, like that's the nature of American business. But it should matter to us that, again, if you read, if you just Google Cannabis New Mexico, you spend some time online, you spend some time reading the stories of these dispensaries, you will see it's a normal person, right? Um, Just a, a person like you or me. And so, uh, you know, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying it's interesting that there are some states that have talk to big game about social equity and that formally have equity policies. Um, and there are other states that have not, but that have just adopted a licensing structure that makes it easier for ordinary people to to participate. And I, I think that's that's what we want, right? We want the industry to reflect the racial and ethnic character of our country. And we want ordinary people to be able to participate and ideally gain ownership in in the industry. And I'll just say, you know, there are other states. I mean, I could take Connecticut, for example, right? I'll, I'll mention Connecticut because it's kind of the opposite of New Mexico. It has a very tight licensing system. Um, and, uh, you know, it has an equity program, but sometimes the fee to be an equity applicant can be almost $3 million. And so it's like, well, what does it, was that really an equity program or was that a way for an elected official to say that they passed an equity program? You know, no one in New Mexico is getting the credit, right? Right? They're not saying, look at me, I'm so special. I'm a a champion here. They just put together a system that allowed ordinary people to use their talents to, 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 to develop in the industry. And again, I think it's telling that Connecticut, one of the richest states in the country with twice the population of New Mexico that legalized cannabis around the same time, right? They both voted in in early 2021, New Mexico, a much poorer state. Um, half the population is doing twice what Connecticut is doing in sales 25 versus 50 million. So, uh, it's, you know, not saying either system is perfect or either system is inherently wrong, but clearly there are different things going on here. And, um, I, w- I think if you look at the ownership of most Connecticut cannabis businesses, it would not be nearly as diverse as New Mexico's, despite um, they're having a quote unquote equity program.
1: Right. And I have met people who have licenses or a person who has a license in Arizona who's hopping over to New Mexico to, for expansion just because it's so financially you know, such a financial burden to, you know, barrier to entry to get into the Arizona market, plus all the other stuff that's happening there that we're listening to now. But right, it, they seem to make it affordable for the regular person to get in. And I didn't realize that 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 it was a poor state. Um, and that would be boosting, you know, jobs. I, I'm really happy to hear that. That That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: in per capita income, you know, so it's, it's, it's pretty low. Yeah. And I just want to say I agree with everything you said, um, especially Arizona, New Mexico, the contrast there. Uh, maybe last thing I, I just want to reemphasize is I'm not saying New Mexico is perfect. Some of those folks may go out of business. There are some people that say, hey, man, like we have a dispensary on every corner that invites a backlash from people who don't like cannabis, even though I'm fine with the dispensary on every corner. I don't know. Maybe there's some truth to that. So I, at least for me, the larger lesson is not that any state has gotten it perfect, but we need to get past the, the idea that there are some moral states and some immoral states, right? These are all just, you know, or like there are some virtuous states, Right. Um, and some states have tried to present themselves as like being the, the paragons of virtue. I think it's like, no, we're all trying these different experiments, and we should be honest about what our goals are, and we should keep tinkering until we achieve those goals, whether they be economic or diversity-related or whatever. And no one has a monopoly on wisdom and and on plans. So
1: Right. I like that, tinkering. We need to keep tinkering. <laughs> Good point. Um, so um, Illinois, Illinois and New Jersey have been you know, legal for uh, a few years, and um, and they seem to be on a kind of slow and steady path. Um, what how, how do you see their markets um, unfolding, or what can they teach us?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think these are both interesting markets, um, and they're exciting because there are two markets that you know rolled out were healthy markets, and yet have sort of stagnated over the past twelve to eighteen months. Have only grown moderately, and what is exciting is I think we are now going to go into a period in which these markets will resume growth again. And I think the story here is really actually just quite simple. Uh, A lot of new store openings were caught up in different lawsuits or in the licensing process. So in Illinois, you know, there were a huge, you know, there were 110 stores to open initially, but then there were another 185 that were issued through the equity licensing process that was caught up in a lawsuit. And then, you know, there was some COVID stuff. And then some people ran out of funding. So for years, that market didn't really take shape. And you only had a few stores come online. What is exciting is that we're now at about 150 stores. So 40 new stores have opened. Many of these are in central and downstate Illinois. Um, Many of these are on borders of other states like Iowa, right? Um, And so we are starting to really see the pace of store openings increase. And, you know, there have been 20 new stores that have opened since August 1st alone. So just fast in the past two and a half months, so the simple story there is, hey, Illinois is a big state. It's a state of 12 million people. It needs way more than 150 dispensaries. The state law says it should have up to 500. We're now finally starting to see some of those stores come online. And so that, as we, you know, it's like the Michigan story. Like, again, it's like, okay, yeah, you just open new stores across the state. You capture a legal demand. And so that, I think, is exciting. And I also think Illinois is interesting because it shows that this sort of, like, MSO versus equity story, I think, is is oversimplified and and is not really true, right? And so, what I mean by that is, you know, this is not a zero sum game. A lot of these new stores that are opening in, in in Illinois are the equity licensees, right? That were granted as part of the process. They obviously want to get open because they've been spending a lot of money on on rent and real estate, so they're they're stoked to get open. They will, in part, be sourcing a lot of those products from a lot of the MSOs in the state who have not been able to turn on their full cultivation capacity because of the lack of store growth, right? And You can think about a company like Forefront that has built like a state of the art cultivation facility in Illinois, but no stores have opened. And so that huge capital investment has not really, you know, gotten a return on it. And so I think Illinois will show us that this is not a zero sum game. You can grow the overall market. There's space for a lot of players and that, you know, the existence of equity licensees is beneficial for a lot of these MSOs. And I'm not saying that's true in every instance. Obviously, this is business. There are some things that are zero sum, but I think that narrative um, that this is a zero sum game is kind of um, peddled by by people um, without having a lot of factual support. So that's why Illinois is, is exciting. Now, you know, people would, would point out the taxes are still too high, the pricing is still too high, sure, there are challenges there, but that's why I think it'll improve. And I think the story is very similar for for New Jersey. Again, nothing I'm saying is really rocket science, but hey, we're getting more stores open now. You know, we initially only had 20 stores open. Now that you you know, when you and I are talking, Pam, we have 55 stores open. Look, Illinois, you know, New Jersey probably should have 500, 700, thousand. So we're still really uh, undersupplied, but um, we we're getting more stores open. Those stores are often doing very well um, because you know, as we've seen, when you're the first to open in a desert, uh, they do well. And we can have line of sight into new operators that are opening. And again, a lot of these are small and equity operators that are opening across the state. Uh, and there are large MSOs in New Jersey who want to develop the product to serve these operators. And so um, I, I think uh, it'll be great to see those two markets uh, take shape and and. Yeah, I mean, I just, uh, all these things happening at the same time, right? These markets that were stagnant now growing, these new markets coming online. I think all of these bubble up into what is an exciting story.
1: Yeah, being here in the Northeast, I, I'm I'm noticing, I think there was just a, a burst in New Jersey, I think they just released 125 new licenses or something. So I think there's a lot of movement going on in New Jersey right now. So yeah, that's very exciting. Um, so I guess let's, I, if we could end this, and I'm kind of really excited about this question is, you um, expansion, like what, what, what makes each of these states appealing for an expanse expansion strategy? Um, like who's best equipped to succeed in these markets? Uh, you know, would it be MSOs brands or w- w- I guess it just a, you know, general thought yeah. on somebody who's thinking about. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think, um, it's, it's, I guess the biggest thing I would say is it's just really important to, we've already, we've talked about how these markets are all so different, right? And so I just think it's really important to think about which of these markets is best suited for your strategy. I mean, just to give you an example, right? If you're a brand and you have some traction and you're trying to break into a new market, you could arguably say that the New Mexico market would be one of the more interesting markets uh, to break into because there's lower barriers to entry, right? And it might be a little harder to break into the Illinois market, for example, because you know so many of those dispensaries are currently controlled by um, the MSOs, right? And you'd have to have a relationship with one of them. And so I think there's no kind of perfect uh, formula, but I think um all of these markets are are quite bespoke and it's important to think about which of them might be the, the best fit um for kind of your strategy. And then maybe the other point is, you know, just regardless of which markets are a good fit, you know, understanding how those markets will evolve. And so for example, getting in, if I, if you were to get into Ohio, for example, right? Or, you know, just to get even more granular, right? Um, if you wanted to get into, not only into Ohio, but the stores in Cincinnati, right? Knowing that the stores in Cincinnati are right on that Kentucky border, right? The Kentucky suburbs are practically in Cincinnati, right? I know that's getting really granular, but that's a way to identify a part of the market that will really be overperforming. In the same way that a year ago, like if 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 someone were smart, they would say to themselves, man, like, okay, there's uh, 20 dispensaries in Kansas City, Missouri. Cool. I think that initiative is going to pass. What can I do to like build relationships in those stores in, in particular? And you know, that region of the state is now dramatically overperforming. So I think there's just a lot of little nuances like that and it's worth um, it's, it's just worth paying attention to these markets for that reason
1: right and and how important i mean i i guess i might know the answer to this but how important is it for brands thinking to expand into different territories to really hone in and develop these relationships with um you know policymakers in that either municipality or the whole state do they even go for the whole state or do they go cuz most are by municipality
0: yeah you know what i would say is it's really important for um For retailers primarily, but really, I mean, anytime you want to establish a physical presence, I mean, primarily retail because it's customer facing, and I think most people will know this, but just to really hone in on it, right, Um, especially any state that has a large degree of local control, here we're talking about the New Jersey's, for example, the California's. It's really important to do your due diligence on which towns are receptive to cannabis and to make a really robust effort to build relationships in in those communities. Um, So I would say that's true if you ever want to establish a presence in a new jurisdiction. But I would say just as important of that is like building relationships with the existing operators in a market. As you consider different markets to enter into, that should be accompanied by an assessment of who the players are in that space and what your level of relationship with them is, right? Like if you really plan to go into Illinois, you better understand, you know, who are the eight operators that comprise 60% of the retail space in Illinois and to, you know, to to what extent does my strategy hinge on working with them? So again, not, not anything that people didn't already know, but yeah, get to know your your regulators, particularly at the local level, and get to know your market participants, especially if you're entering into a new state, because you're going to have to find the right allies if you want to gain traction.
1: Is is that the kind of relationship building that you do um at Ananda if if you're for clients, is is that's part of what you do is, is getting in and building these relationships and right, of course. Yeah, it's like information and
0: in, in relationships. It's basically a lot of what we talked about today, which is to say, um, how do you survey the landscape of now these like two dozen adult use states that exist out there and be really thoughtful about where you fit in, right, um to this framework? Or I mean, again, not to get too into the weeds, but even if you're a software provider, right? And you wanna sell your software to folks in certain states, like how are you thoughtful about, okay, so this store is about to open in two months and then they plan to open five more locations in the next six months. So maybe that's someone I should really go after and ally myself with, or if you're a brand, how do I get into those stores and scale with them? And so that's the way I think about it. Information on the architecture of these different markets and then um, really building um, authentic relationships with potential partners and with um, local stakeholders.
1: Cool. Hirsch, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank
0: you so much. This was awesome,
1: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.
0: Season 1 of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.